Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I literally have the doctor of funk. Yes, he has an actual PhD from Cal Berkeley, author of many books, Funk, The Music, People in the Rhythm of the One, and about the Black Panthers and how soul power revolutionized soul music, Black power revolutionized soul music, contributor of many books, and a master of all funk, like I said. So we're going to get all, in, all that and then some with the one, the only, Dr. Ricky Vincent, Mr. Vincent, Dr. Vincent, excuse me, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover. Thank you for having me here, Brother Mason, man. I, I'm just thrilled to be uh, uh, spitting about the funk, man. Not much you can do better than that, except yeah. playing it and listening to it. Yes, sir. The whole funk and nothing but the funk. That's right. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. How did you end up at the prestigious Cal University at Berkeley? Well, um, that kind of took a, a number of turns, but uh, you know how some of us, my generation came up through the P-Funk, came up through uh, the landing of the mothership, come, came up through Dr. Funkenstein, uh, came up through uh, the chocolate-coated freaking human habit form, and the way this guy could mix technical language with slang language in a way that just felt natural. It felt like that was the rhythm, like you could uh, go into one and it doesn't doesn't take away from, from the other. And so I got into with a, a group of folks that were pretty much um, funky people studying uh, math and science and things like that. And so I wound up uh, in one of those uh, Ronald Reagan uh, recruitment programs. They were trying to get minority engineers. And so I snuck in the side door at, at, as an astronomy major. I said, okay, I can do some of that. Um, you know, I can do all those uh, basics and math and science, but I want to go uh, to other worlds. I want to go check, check out what, uh, what uh, is that on the top of the chocolate Milky Way and things like that. So I was already thinking in some kind of funkatized terms while I was trying to just get a degree and maybe be a science teacher or something. You know, be a high school uh, science teacher. I, I came across a couple in my past and I said, you know, that's an honorable thing to do for a brother in the community. Um, but the, you know, the funk just kept, kept pushing me forward. Uh, and I did, I did some more of that science work and then um, found an internship in, uh, where was I in, um, I was in Arizona at the Kitt Peak Observatory, this uh, big observatory way down there in uh, Southern Arizona. And um, I worked on the luminosity function of the galactic nucleus. And uh, I just thought this is rocking. And I asked the people there, how do I get a job like this? Like the rest of y'all, they said, well, 12 years of graduate school. I said, okay, since I wasn't much older than that. I was like, no, okay, thank you very much. And I came back and the following summer, I walked into the college radio station down there at, at Cal, 
Cal Berkeley had a radio station called KALS. And like a lot of radio, you know, college radio, it was really uh, free form. It was open. And you could do a lot of what you wanted to do. And they had their, their, their quirks, but they let you loose, really. And uh, it was a punk rock station, basically. And so it, I challenged their notions of how, how free punk rock really is. Uh, by playing them super stupid and Alice in My Fantasies and some of these crazy funkadelic records. And then saying you can go further down, further deep. And, but it did kind of open me up to how bold one could be on the air with their music. Because most of us are familiar with the jazz DJ over here, the smooth soul DJ over there. You know, most, most of us are familiar with maybe, you know, some some artist or, or some uh, uh, historian that can present the music in a nice formal way. But college radio was where it was, it was raw. It was happening while, and that was really when uh, hip hop was starting, uh, starting to go national. And that meant the first 12 inch singles were some of the first records. I mean, uh, MC Light, I Cram to Understand You. I mean, just Black Milk, I mean, crazy groups that, were way underground, and we remember that period from, you know, Busta Move and and uh, you know Big Daddy Kane and some of those. But it was all kinds of music happening, all kinds of uh, electronics, all kinds of experimentation, and I just kept sniffing out the funk. And then people started to approach me with, "Well, where'd that sample came from? I thought I heard that funk before." I was like, "You don't know where that funk came before." Uh, you know, I tried to I tried to play it. Got on my got my own show, and so I started just doing uh, what I thought was important. And y'all, I mean, people need to remember that when hip hop blew up, it was a, a a statement of Black history to throw in a '70s funk jam that was forgotten or or deliberately uh, silenced, and then they bring it all the way back to the forefront. The uh, first, of course, was with the James Brown tracks, but they were bringing back Lakeside and Fatback and Mass Production and Average White Band and Cool and the Gang, and, uh, and then they started bringing back Zap and Parliament and and you know the big slapping funk from Dayton. Um, so I wound up giving history lessons on the radio. And telling people, okay, look, that here's the rap tune, here's the sample, you know, here's here's the original song, boom, 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 and I was like, well, somebody needs to spell this out before somebody that doesn't know what the funk is going on uh, starts to match these things up. And so we're talking about the middle '80s. There really wasn't an, uh, an, an internet nationally. There really wasn't there wasn't any YouTube where you could just go and click and find out you know, a song or a similar song and things like that. People had to still do a lot of hunting, a lot of uh, similar to crate digging, where you find one record and you look for, you know, what, what what's around it or who who else played on it and what did they do? And, and you start to learn uh, about the music that way. Um, so I started to spell it out. And by the middle 80s, it was, it was like where I was, even though, a whole lot of people were into the funk and P-Funk was coming to town and, and good heavy funk bands were still thriving uh, in the 80s. They weren't getting on commercial radio, but they were still doing their thing. 
um, you know, I felt somebody needed to tell the story. And I looked down and it just wasn't, uh, wasn't like a community of writers that were acknowledging what we all knew had just happened. Okay, less than a decade you know, before, uh, you had stadium-sized venues sold out with these, you know, troops of black bands, nine, 10, 12 members, uh, with just a, a big spectacular show uh, going on uh, night after night. And within five years, that was a, a forgotten memory. And I'm like, something's missing. Somebody needs to kind of connect these dots here because those dots connect to our black, our black history, our knowledge of ourselves. And if we walk away from that, then we're, we're not gonna understand anything else that we're trying to do. Because this was the music that came out of black power. This is the music that came out of a struggle to change the world. And honestly, at this point, I think the sort of artificial shutdown of the funk movement was because of people that were uh, afraid of the power that it had, which brings us to public enemy and fear of a black planet, which you can tell that's kind of where we're at right now, but that's another story. But so I got started, you know, kind of dabbling in science, always collecting records, obviously. I was a kid in Berkeley and great record stores out here. And um, a lot of college towns have uh, record stores because people come and go every year. There's a, people bring in and they leave. So there's always good turnover. So there was always a good spot to collect. Um, and, you know, dabbled in the science and technology of it. And I said, well, you know, the funk is a way to uh, sort of reach for your interplanetary functionship and and not really have to lose your soul. And so I understood it and saw myself putting it in, in into play. Uh, but then the opportunity availed itself to write about this stuff and kind of capture what the funk is all about. And I had a couple of good advisors over there. I mean, that's a big campus. So I wouldn't say everybody was down for it, but I could find a couple that really understood what I was doing. They understood on a soul level, on a blackness level, on a you know black history level, things like that. They understood. They may not have understood you know, the cosmic slop or the maggot brain, but uh, they, uh, they, they could see that there was, it had this, this heavy gravitas to it. And, um, and, you know, a lot of them had some James Brown 45s in their collections from back in the day, and they could see that this was sort of a expansion out of, out of that, big, that big bang that James Brown <laughs> set this explosion. We're all sort of dealing with this uh, after effects. Wow, that is so crazy. Very interesting story. And for those that don't know, Cal, very prestige school. If you are an athlete, you got to have the same standards as the regular student body. So they're not going to make any exceptions for you. And of course, the Bay Area, very influential Black Panthers, Sly and the Family Stone, Graham Central Station, Tower of Power, Sheila E., Tony, 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 Too Short, E40, Club Nouveau, g Easy. We could go down the list of all the great acts that came out of the Bay Area. Santana? Mm-hmm. Breaking them down. Yes, yes, sir. And also, if you haven't seen the documentary Crip Camp, some of the activists that got the ADA passed in 1990, the seeds were planted in and around the Bay Area because a lot of them 
went to Cal or stayed in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, I want to go back to the origins of the funk, to the Midwest, Ohio to be exact, Dayton and Cincinnati. I had Chris Jasper of the Isley Brothers and Isley Jasper Isley on the show recently. He was breaking that down. So in your opinion, what do you think was so important in that particular spot in Ohio with Cincinnati and Dayton that all these great funk acts happened to emerge? And we can't forget Cleveland as well. And Ohio is just a mind blower because it, it represents so much of America and yet it has a very uh, regional history. And part of the great regional history is that um, that Mason-Dixon line crossed right there. When you get to Cincinnati, you got uh, Kentucky, which is the South, and you cross that line and you are free. You're in the North, you're on your way, you're in the North. And there's this uh, kind of palpable sense of liberation, if you will. And this was after asking a lot of other people that very same question. Um, people started to, you know, kind of take a look at the funk and how did the funk, how did all these bands come out of that same area, all fully formed, all have their own identities, nobody's copying anybody else, uh, all radio, airplay worthy, all stage burners, all of them can just play on stage. I mean, what is, what is, what is what's in the water? Right? And that was the phrase for a minute. People said, what is in the water out there that, that makes all this happen? And uh, in, in it, there's a couple of things. One is the demographics of that region. And when we talk about the great migration, that's important. Because uh, we could talk about just the birth of rhythm and blues um, and sort of electrified modern music happening after this migration of half of black America leaving the South and spreading to these larger cities. And then everywhere black folks go, they create a musical scene of their own. That's just what we do, okay? Um, that was the first uh, wave of uh, electrification. In the 1950s, some of these people be in a house for the first time with a, uh, an electric socket. You can plug your equipment in, you can plug in, you can have a garage band, you can do these things. And so the reason I'm saying that is um, some communities had a degree of stability, sovereignty. Uh, they were able to kind of run, run their own uh, you know, community. I don't say run them in some authority way, but they were uh, given their space to do their thing. We've heard about communities, black communities that were thriving and there'd be jealousy and, and tension and violence as a result. But um, Cincinnati uh, had its own uh, ups and downs, but Dayton uh, in particular, that city managed to thrive with a, a roughly 50, 50% population and each kind of took care of its own thing and, and didn't, uh, you know, it, it didn't turn into something against each other. And so that was a, a community, that was a, a place where the black community could thrive, the black professional community got along with the, um, the people in the uh, illicit economy, let's say. Uh, and so the whole sort of, you know, black experience was given a certain um, element of, of, uh, of respect. So people could come up 
get some of this style from uh, some folks that are doing, um, you know, unsavory activities and get some of the technical training from maybe a public school uh, classroom, get their chops up in a battle of the bands with other cats that are doing the same thing and play with some musicians who had, you know, real equipment, you know, like Junie Morrison, Billy Beck, these folks had state-of-the-art keyboards when they were doing their thing, right? So it was this really interesting mix of class, uh, of um, sort of community, uh, sort of support, and then creativity. That it just seemed like people saw it as a as a launch pad, in part for their freedom, because it's across the Mason-Dixon line. Some people give credit to the Wright brothers because there's a, a military base with a, a that's named after the Wright brothers uh, that uh, people say. Uh, had some UFO top secret equipment over there that they stored some things over there. So people always kind of saw that here we are in the middle of the country. Like you said, it's in the Midwest. It's in flyover America, but you know we have this own sense of being larger than life right here. And so many factors came together to make it happen. And I asked myself that, well, could this have happened in Rochester, New York? Could it have happened in, um, you know, Atlanta or some other place like that? But somehow Dayton and Cincinnati were, uh, in a sense, at that crossroads. And a lot of times when you're at the crossroads, the, 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 the crisscross and connections, that's where creativity happens, okay? And most of the time, I mean, we're talk, we have to talk about Dayton now and Ohio and Cincinnati, um, but a lot of times they'll talk about uh, cities where all this other economic and cultural traffic happens, like New Orleans, where there's all this commerce up and down the Mississippi, uh, people coming through, uh, you know, from the Gulf of Mexico and different, you know, the French were there and the British were there and, and you know, it's near, Cuba and all this stuff, and the same with the, the Bay Area, because there's the mix of that Latino population, that the Asian population, the blue people that came out here. Um, a lot of folks that weren't going to take no mess were out there on the West Coast, and we see how that turned into different things. So um, a lot of times, a location where the influences could be different, but they come together in, in certain creative cultural ways. Uh, you can you can sort of spot something, or at least you can kind of understand something. And um, so Dayton is the funk capital of the world. Now you won't hear any argument from that from me. Now I do know that uh, most of the Dayton bands that I've, members that I've talked to, and I ask them where they get their funk from, they're like, uh, well, of course you know, we live here with Sugarfoot and Bootsy and the Godfather but we were studying Sly and the Family Stone, how to put that whole band concept to, together and take it higher. So uh, he is uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, sort of the uh, lesson, the education that funk around the country uh, needed. Um, so I'm, I'm okay with uh, representing the Bay, uh, even though I'm celebrating the funk half of the world, which is eight. Right, and you could take a look at all of the great acts out of that region, Zap, Ohio Players, Lakeside, we can go on and on. And you mentioned 
early hip hop and zap. And when EPMD put out You Gas to Chill, they were saying how they got a lot of love on the West Coast because not a lot of New York acts were using funk samples. And at that time, when you think of West Coast hip hop, you thought about Egyptian Lover, LA Dream Team, very electro, high energy, what you were here on 1580 K-Day. You can check out my interview with Greg Mack, by the way. And in the Bay Area, when E-40 and Too Short started breaking in, was there really kind of like saying like, hey, we got our own different style than what's going down in Southern California and how were they able to carve out their own niche while everybody outside of California only saw West Coast hip hop as coming out of Southern California, Uncle Jam's Army, that whole thing in the early years before Dr. Dre and Defra. Yeah, EPMD, it, that's an interesting uh, way to put it because out here, uh, you know, we got a lot of love for uh, Digital Underground and how they, they not only brought the hump, they explained the hump. And they didn't just sample funk, they, they sampled concepts and characters and, and all this stuff. And they were given a lot of the West Coast hip hop and everybody else a, a, a lesson on how to take that funk sampling thing to another level. But any time you listen to, uh, to Shock G and those guys, they give it up for EPMD. They recognize that that bump that was in there is not just sampling funk, but they sampled the bump. And that means everything. And so when they said, boom, 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 relax your mind, let your conscience be free, that, that really, that turned me out. But it would be a year or two later that um, we heard Digital Underground doing a lot of the same thing and referencing uh, EPMD's influence. Uh, and then explain, this sort of showcasing how much uh, this, extra realm of funk there is when you get down towards the p it's not just the bump there's all these other elements that are jazzy and crazy and country and western and 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 spacey and all these different things that if you know what you're doing uh you could be sampling p-funk for the for the rest of your life and it'll still be original um and so it opened the door to from my point of view a much broader way of creating hip-hop um they, what de la soul uh with uh, their dj um i was just playing his work he did uh, prince, prince paul. paul yeah uh when he did the when he sampled you know 900 different bits of music for three feet high and rising uh on one level that was brilliant and on another level it was just sort of opening a doorway to like this is a whole next level of things that, that can be done that's historical it's comical it's you know it's as black as you want to be but it's really really broad-minded and so out here digital underground digital underground was doing a very similar thing uh kind of counseling it counseling in that pimp strut bay area slap that you know we've had since larry graham emerged um but the whole idea was freedom was this sense of opening things up so you could really be as creative as you want to be and you know growing up with the beats growing up with all the hip-hop um there's only so many ways 
you can say kind of the same street narrative over and over again. And there's sort of a, an imperative that you bring some style to it, some flavor, some originality and put your stamp on it. And, um, and so again, much respect to Eric and Paris making dollars, uh, but the way the thump got sort of established in the hip hop approach in the Bay spread to the G-Funk down South and, and then everybody kind of blew up as a result. Ice Cube and those guys and, and, and everybody started to take it up uh, to, an, to another level. And now folks are finally unpacking that era for the sort of the quality and the, and the, um, and the skill level because folks were still, still kind of in the, in the glaze of the, all the scandalous stuff happening as a result. But uh, yeah, man, the funk got some power to it. Mm-hmm. No way around it. Yeah, and you mentioned Digital Underground, R.I.P. Shock G, and how Digital Underground introduced us to Tupac Shakur, who started off as a roadie, dancer, got his cameo on the same song for the I Love Trouble soundtrack, and then that led to his career, which tragically was cut short. And Tupac, he had a foot in both worlds where he was for the people and for the streets and was able to meld and mesh the two. Yeah, um, I think the, there's that Netflix documentary on uh, Out the Trunk, that's the hip hop in the Bay. And they talk about uh, how and why Shock G brought in um, Tupac, right? There were some other folks in the managers that, that knew how talented Tupac was. Uh, and they knew that he could uh, bring a message, not just be another gangster rapper that gets everybody paid. Uh, with negativity, but he could bring a message. And uh, in that piece, they said, uh, Tupac told Shock G, he said, well, I have an offer to be uh, the leader of the New African Panthers in Atlanta. So if, unless you want to do this, want me to do this hip hop, I'm going to go do that. And that was an interesting kind of crossroads he was at. And Shock G you know, opened the door to him and, you know, there was folks in support, but, you know, he, Tupac made the decision to go towards his own craft, his own art, his own revolutionary sensibility and deliver that uh, to the people as best he could. And, you know, for so, for too long, he didn't have that nurturing environment that could have, you know, created something even more epic than what he did. Uh, but, um, you know, he got he got it started out here, and it might have been this was the only place it was going to happen because there's so much of a of a kind of backdrop of revolution out here in the East Bay. Okay, it may not be something you notice, although there's you know street signs says Huey Newton Way over on Seventh Street, and you know there's murals and there's uh, you know echoes uh, of this revolution that was uh, taking place in the in the bay area in particular in oakland in particular oakland and berkeley uh, at a particular time that hasn't left hasn't left us and so people recognize that and people they, they make space for that i think because and this is where i did the research they recognize the humanity of these folks that were taken on the system they weren't strung out you know, drug addicted lunatics loading up 
guns and doing something stupid. Uh, they were very serious, deliberate, uh, careful about being law-abiding defenders of their community. Right? And then they built around that so people could contribute in any way that they felt uh, they could. So there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of open space to be who you were uh, in the East Bay, uh, going all the way back, and Tupac kind of uh, sort of represented that uh, in the 90s. Mm, he definitely did. And we touched on earlier Dr. Dre and Death Row and how when The Chronic came out, it pushed that G-Funk sound nationally, internationally even, by sampling, I believe, was Leon Haywood's I Want to Do Something Freaky to You and Nothing But a G-Thing. And for me, as a seven-year-old kid in rural Northeastern North Carolina, that was my view, early view, of what life on the West Coast was like through the chronic and menace to society, my vita loca, boys in the hood, seeing how this is what life on the West Coast was like. Well, um, I'm not going to argue with it. It, uh, it definitely exposed uh, a, a good amount of life uh, on the West Coast uh, in the in the in the post-industrial urban spaces uh, uh, on the on the West Coast, and that that was definitely true. It was definitely there. The only thing that I would sort of add is, and a lot of these kind of films, they just zeroed in very very narrowly uh, on a community and in a in a place in a moment when there could, when there is actually a lot more conversation happening. Okay, there's a lot more. Yeah, the, the young people are doing this stuff, but they still have a conversation with their grandmother in the morning before they get in these, you know, they still connect to things. And that's, I don't know if it matters that much, but uh, I see a lot of uh, street narratives on the East Coast that, that, that sort of fill out a whole, a day in the life of so-and-so. And, -so. and um, the West Coast here, it was pretty easy to glamorize the, the, the highlight reel, the drive-by, the, the craziness, uh, when you know there's a whole lot of humanity going on here and a lot of diversity going on around here. So it's, it's not simply that binary, but you know, if that was what was needed to kind of break open the conversation, um, then it, it definitely served its purpose. And that stuff and those films and those songs are legendary. And it's been a generation, almost two. Let's flush that out. Let's see you know, uh, how, how, how these communities uh, were living and are living now. Because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bigger picture. It's a bigger pot because these different people from all over uh, now living in the same region, got the same struggles, same economics, Right, same uh, racist police force, all these different things that are going on. Um, so where, where, where are we now? That kind of thing. So I always have that conversation or I always ask myself about that because that sometimes you play that hard 90s G-Funk and you don't want to play anything else. But it's important to, to realize that was, that was the sort of, those guys were the front line and there was all kinds of other things happening. Mm, and back to the funk mentioned Sly and the Family Stone. Tell me how was a guy out of Buffalo by the name of Rick James and the Stone City Band, and then another young musician that you all know and love, 
from Minneapolis, Minnesota, took what Sly and the Family Stone did and added their own elements to it. So can you talk about the impact of Rick James, Prince, and how they added to the template that Sly laid? So um, what's fascinating about that time period is there were a lot of bands that started up in 69, 70, 71, 72. And then you have this wave of, of bands that came up later, 77, 78, 79. But a lot of them were all contemporaries because they didn't get known until later. And what Rick James and Prince were both doing in the middle of the 70s, while these other bands are blowing up and building on you know, the Sly Stone and James Brown formula, those guys were uh, really branching in a lot of other directions. And Prince talks about um, having to do uh, uh, pop covers, you know, working like for a bar band. And he was underage and he was still sort of the one arranging the songs. And he said he didn't like it, but he was learning how hits are made, okay, at a young age. Uh, Rick James was in a rock band called the Minor Birds in the middle 70s. And he was trying to be, you know, a black rock singer in a, in a white rock band. And, but what that means is you have this very broad palette of influences that you can bring to your song. And what's, what was magic about Sly and the Family Stone was Sly had a way of arranging all these different elements in a way that just the groove just, just fit. It just had a it had a lock a lock tight fit, and so I see and hear James Brown and Prince, I mean uh, Rick James and Prince both doing that, taking the, the 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 little sound elements that they that they like or the entire tone that they like the Prince likes, and you know making all these broad pieces fit, and I think that's part of their popularity because the African American experience is African and American. And it's Western as much as it is, uh, you know, primal African groove, rhythm, soul, and passion. Uh, so there's structure to it and there's rawness to it. And the great ones know how to, you know, combine them both really well. And so Rick James, even though we think of his hits, you and I and uh, busting out and give it to me, baby. If you ever see Rick James show, he'll do a song and then there'll be like a, 40 second interlude of some free jazz in between the tracks, okay? And then he'll do a ballad and then drop a little blues line for just a couple of bars and come out. And he's just kind of saying, you know, that's, that, that's all, that's the backdrop to what I'm bringing. And Prince obviously was doing the same thing because he was creating whole songs and whole different new ways, but they were threads of old ways of making hits. And that's what's unique. Well, so many parts that are unique about Prince that he you know, had his own expressive way of being uncensored and that type of stuff. But musically, he was very bold, but he was just free and audacious about how free he was going to be to add different influences and lock them in. So you can add different influences and it just sounds like clutter. But Sly showed them all how, how you lock it in and you never lose the groove. Um, so both of them uh, were building on what was a grand tradition, but 
Jarrell, there was nobody to explain that grand tradition. So the media just said, Rick James came out of nowhere, came out of Buffalo. Uh, Prince came out of nowhere, came out of Minneapolis. And they're just geniuses. And they just, and you know, Michael Jackson, similar story, but at least he's tied into the Motown narrative. Okay. Those other guys were, were, were sort of treated like they just sort of emerged out of the ether. And part of that, in terms of their skill and their and their tenacity is true, but in terms of you know, weaving the threads of uh, the black tradition, um, what they did was uh, deep in the tradition, as innovative as their music sounded. Mm, and it's crazy how years later Prince ended up getting Sheila E to come be a part of his band, and we could talk about her family history and how George Duke put her on, and that just led to everything else after that. Yeah, and you know, not every uh, band is ready for a Latin music master in their band. And so you, you have to be basically a master in what you do to, to work with that. And, and most band leaders are, are good with personality as well. And uh, so uh, George Duke was able to do that. Prince was able to do that. And we don't give enough credit to these leaders of people that are also masters of the craft that can do this thing with six, seven, eight, nine, 12, 15 players, right? Maurice White and Earth, Wind and Fire. You have these people that can, you know, sort of create what is basically a tribe, you know, basically a collective that doesn't have a Western construct. Yeah, a van. Yeah, no, yeah, but no, but yeah, but it's a it's a whole different thing uh, when these black artists are doing it and it's, and they're sort of tapping into uh, that flow, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, that's what people lose track of when it gets all chopped up and sampled and lost, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And can we talk about how Tony 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 was able to blend funk with R&B? Because I got a funny story for you about Tony Tony Tony. I was a kid and when I heard Little Walter and then went to church the next Sunday and heard Way in the Water, in my five-year-old mind, I was like, that's little Walter. And just talk about how Tony, Tony, Tony was able to merge the funk traditions out of the Bay and mesh that with R&B and have worldwide success and Raphael Sadiq's solo career as a solo artist, producer, and with Lucy Pearl, which Don Robinson of In Vogue and Ali Shaheed Muhammad of A Tribe Called Quest. Wow. Um, what's fascinating to me about Tony, 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 and you nailed it. They knew how to uh, sort of create a, a pop construction of all these elements of the Bay. And just in thinking about it, um, I crossed paths a lot with uh, Dwayne Wiggins. And he's one of the Tonys and he's the bass player and he lives and breathes Larry Graham. And so any chance you get to talk about, you know, somebody said, uh, uh, Mr. Vincent, we need a conversation about Larry Graham. I, I would get Dwayne Wiggins up in here to talk about how that affected him, changed his life. Everything he studied, everything he worked on was about Larry Graham. And so that approach to making the music and making it pop accessible uh, comes from that school, the Larry Graham, of course, from the Sly and the Family Stone School of making all these different influences accessible. But then what's ironic is Tony, 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 for all their songs, they're not known for the big thunder-plucking bass. They're known for making all the pieces fit 
so that Raphael Sadiq's voice can be out front, but he's never alone. There's always something juicy and colorful going on behind it. But they knew the formula at that late 80s period into the 90s for R&B was not about slapping the bass guitar with your thumb and, and cranking it up. Unless you listen to the go-go music out of DC, uh, that was not something that the market was uh, interested in trying to uh, to work with. They were trying to go the other direction and and make a synthesizer do the bass lines and things like that. And so they were they they had sort of figured out that the bass line is necessary, but we have to tone it and tame it so that it it does what needs to be done, so it'll be played basically on the radio. And that's a skill, that's a craft, and not everybody has that. I know a lot of people that are super talented that make you know great music of a certain uh, certain flavor, even a subset of a of a of a thing. But I'm not going to ask them to make a radio airplay version of their main record. It's just not worth it because that's not who they are or what their focus is. And you like to think that they've accepted where they are and can give their gifts to people and not worry too much about that. But Tony, Tony, Tony had it figured out and they were, um, I don't know if they were the last, but they were a, definitely a brilliant link from, you know, the thunderous older days to maybe the real um, sort of uh, inspired uh, next generation, people like her, folks like that, that had, have a consciousness and a creative talent and can work with it. Right. And also at the same time, Club Nouveau was out and about doing it big with Jay King and Foster and McElroy. And if it wasn't for Foster and McElroy, we would not have this little four woman group, Cindy, Dawn, Terry, Maxine, better known as In Vogue, and also No Why You Treat Me So Bad, No I Got Five On It by the Loonies. And they had the Nation Funk Tasia. They were trying to do their own funk band for a minute. And um, they did their own solo record with the Godfather. Godfather. Um, uh, Dr. Soul. They had MC Light on that. Uh, they had Dr. Soul, right. And, uh, and, so they, and if you listen to that one, they just, they had it figured out. A few of them figured it out. Teddy Riley. Judy people at that time, they figured it out. Um, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis with Janet Jackson, they figured out how to take that sort of foundation that, you know, sort of is in people's, you know, in, the, in their reptilian brain, what they want to groove on and give it something current and modern and, and, and make it fit and make it work. And, uh, you know, I got nothing but respect for Foster McElroy who made, who made it happen and managed to stay sort of out of the spotlight I don't know if that was their goal or not, but they made it, they made it unscathed, let's say. Because a lot of the folks, you know, the the spot, the, the glare of the spotlight will scorch you after a while. And and it's rough because people have, you know, the uh, they think they have the the um, the stamina for it. They think they have the drive and determination for it, but you know, that, that can shred you in a minute. So, right the business can chew you up and spit you out. Now you mentioned Teddy Riley and New Jack Swing. What was your take when you first heard, let's say, Keith Sweat's Make It Last Forever album, our guy's debut album in 88, in the meshing of hip hop and R&B coming together? And I want to mention that prior to Teddy, 
full force was kind of getting the groundwork started with that, with their work, UTFO, Lisa Lisa and the Colt Jam, Cheryl Pepsi Riley. <laughs> hey, Dee Dee. Well, see, the thing is, I saw, I sort of witnessed that the most on Soul Train. And when I would hear the new Jack Swing beat, for me, I'm a, I got a real nose for beats. So if you're going to play uh, sort of the similar beat on a lot of songs, I'm going to have my, uh, you know, my alerts up. And I said, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Is this imitation or celebration or, or what's up? And when I saw how it worked on Soul Train, how people brought those vibes to life, I was like, wait a minute, this is a, this is a hook that has some staying power. And right around that time, I got a call from Rhino Records and they were putting a compilation of New Jack Swing songs together. And they asked me to write the liner notes. And I was like, well, okay, uh, that, that's where we are. My only issue was they wouldn't let me put um, the boys, uh, thank you for the funk. They had a video of that with all the P-Funk elements in there. And it was like a celebration of the history. And New Jack Swing, it's amazing because it had sort of what the electro-funk DJs of the early 80s dreamed of in terms of a, a you know, sort of a, a, a mechanized hook that could capture everybody, right? It had that. It had the top shelf singers in the country doing the stuff on top of it. We mentioned in Vogue, you know, we mentioned um, you got uh, all the uh, L. Biv DeVoe and all those guys, all, all the whole uh, new edition, grown up, doing that. Um, Ralph Presbont and everybody else was doing these um, rub you the wrong way. Uh, rub, rub you the right way. Uh, man, I played that on my show the other day. Um, so all of these elements were there and this was happening during a, a black cultural awakening a black and proud thing when people had on their shirt it's a black thing you wouldn't understand okay and you know let's face it it's taken about 20 years for white folks to figure out some of those dances that people were doing with new jack swing at that time so uh it sort of it served a powerful purpose my only issue was where's the base where's the base that, that was my only concern at the time, but it it really delivered in so many ways. It delivered the goods that, that we were, you know, that we needed. We were thriving at this time through our culture, not through our economics, not through our politics, not through you know uh, our relationship to you know law enforcement and, and things like that. But um, there was a whole lot of uh, sort of cultural activity going on and. And the New Jack Swing was sort of our identifying marker. And uh, so you got to be proud of that. You got to connect all the dots like you've been doing. Right. And the only other group besides Tony, Tony, Tony that I felt was able to merge the funk and R&B during the New Jack Swing era was a band out of Buffalo, New York that had a hit with Live and Learn, Joe Public. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, you know, that, that's, now, that, that's pretty good. Um, you ran a risk if you were going to do a groove that wasn't what was in the, the radio format that the producers were telling you you had to do. 
And you know, Prince was one of the few people that could get away with being off of that formula and still get played, right? And, uh, and most people uh, were kind of were, were kind of stuck with that conformity thing. And that was that was a different negotiation. Most of the '80s was that. Most of the '80s was a formula for R&B, which grew into the New Jack Swing formula, um, and it it left people sort of in the lurch that they were going to have an album with 16 songs but you're kind of told give us 15 of the same type of thing when in the past they, people would have a regular vinyl album with eight songs and you'd have room to really go places with those eight songs so the 80s was, was tougher on on some folks but i got to give it up to the ones that made it through and gave us what we needed right they gave the people what they wanted now let's talk about the early history of bay area hip-hop i mentioned earlier e40 too short how they were selling their records out of the trunk and moving units to where the big labels came knocking but there was this one man out of oakland that combined the showmanship and presence of james brown with the emerging styles and sounds of rap sold his power record independently made so much noise that Capitol records came knocking and then they were well rewarded with please hammer don't hurt them selling 10 million plus copies, diamond status. So can we talk about E-40, Too Short, and the impact of MC Hammer? Well, the thing that connects them, although their music is all different, um, was their hustle and drive and their uh, ability to do them and not do somebody else, okay? And so Hammer, you know, came up, he was a ball boy for the Oakland A's. He was doing things in the, in the youth, you know, community that, um, you know, sort of fit his, his, his sensibilities and, and, and his, his family background. And he's like, you know, I, I can be an entertainer. He was already a sort of a youth entertainer. So I can be an entertainer and do this thing. Still building on the phone sampling, tear the roof off, and all is in the sampling, the Rick James and whatnot. Um, but, you know, he went for it, and it was, it was difficult to watch the crit critics come after him just for the approach that he was using, which was family-oriented um, entertainment. You know, what's wrong with that? Uh, but there, there, was a, there was a bit of a, of a growth process for hip-hop um, to kind of move beyond uh, the street tales and talk about the things at the other side of the street, the things that, you know, that other people on the street are dealing with. Uh, so Hammer just brought together all of the excitement and the energy and the creativity and some of that boogaloo tradition, all the dance traditions that Oakland has had over the years. And he combined all these things into a kinetic, high energy, uh, sort of enter entertainment platform that people wish they had today. And it, it was tough that he got criticized before he just kind of broke through. And, you know, surprised Disney didn't sponsor him after, uh, after a couple of years and, and keep that going and put, uh, put him in, uh, um, you know, uh, some kind of you know, uh, Disneyland ride or something and you know, sort of keep that thing going. Too short. We know came through, you know, from the from the neighborhood, making his music uh, for the 
players on the street. They asked him for beats, and he would he would make a, he would make a, a, a wrap up with you know with some of their some of their flavor, give them some, name them, name drop them, and um, and E40 did a similar thing, real grassroots, real uh, homegrown, um, and his thing was he couldn't. Too Short had a slow, deliberate delivery. And it's funny because the Bay Area's rap scene is really known for some of the fastest deliveries in the game. Uh, but Too Short, the originator, uh, was low in the pocket like a low rider. And that's where he's from. That's what people love from him. And he delivered those goods. And uh, e- E40 was sort of the clown prince. He could verbalize and you know, exaggerate the uh, uh, and contextualize and throw his rhymes out there with so, with so much flavor and yet so much authenticity people couldn't get enough of it. Um, but they all started, they were all established before a major label came after them. It's not like, you know, some big industry showed up and said, okay, here's your star that you have to support. Um, they all came up that through their own ranks on their own terms and, and gave people these multiple flavors. The same way, you know, Paris, and we already talked about Digital Underground, they came up on their own terms. Uh, Boots Riley and the two uh, talking about revolution and still being funny, entertaining, and having their own their own spicy flavor, right? And it, it appears, I asked Boots Riley that, I mean, how, how did you get a record deal? You wasn't gonna go beg a record company? And he said, Somebody, some record company hack walked into Leopold's Records, which is one of the main big indie record stores in the 80s. And um, back then, there's someone at the door that's DJing at the door. And they're like, take your bag and they're spinning records and da da da. And that guy walked in and said, you know, who's, the, who's, the, who's hitting right now? And the guy just handed him the coup. And boom, because there was so much interest in what was happening, you know, they got sold, but nobody was going to tell Boots Riley what to say or what to do. And I don't know if a conversation was had among those, you know, industry representatives, but um, it was, it wasn't very much of a, of a, of a, of a big debate. You know, the, the folks that came out of here were, were all different. And they're all original. You either want you want to roll with them, or you know go somewhere else and, and, and get some conformity. But you're not going to find it here, right? And if it wasn't for Hammer E40, Too Short, there'll be no Souls of Mischief, Hieroglyphics, Dale the Funky Homo Sapien, Mr. Fabe, Mac Dre, R.I.P. G Easy, and all of the great traditions that came out of the Bay Area. Now with Hammer. Prey samples when doves cry by Prince. And I read that Prey was one of the rare samples that Prince cleared. That's an interesting uh, situation because most of us figured that it was just an automatic no, that they don't even listen and, and you don't get it. Um, so that, you know, that kind of means a lot when you, when you, when you unpack the whole thing because uh, it could you know, make or break someone's career hammer still would have been you know celebrated um, but that kind of means something um, and it's interesting when you when you get down into 
you know, that, so that inner sanctum of where these great artists are, and they have, you know, values and principles and morals, and, and they really want to, to find a way to, you know, do something helpful. It's just usually difficult for them to get through all the layers and screens and actually deal with folks. And it took a while, I think, for Prince's um, aura to kind of fade a little so the real person could come out and be seen. Right, because I know Speech had said in an interview when Tennessee broke, they didn't get a sample cleared for Alphabet Street for Tennessee, how Prince heard it, and then later found out the song's true meaning and everything, and Speech said he cut us a break, charged us only a flat fee, where he could have just said cease and desist, take the record off like Gilbert O'Sullivan did with Biz Marquis and I Needed a Haircut, where he illegally sampled Alone Again Naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's too bad that the conversation isn't uh, a little more systematically uh, 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 connected and, and that support could be built upon. Uh, for what it's worth, the sampling that did happen did show the sort of historical connection to the roots of the music. And I don't know if those approvals were, were based on any of that at the time, but it, it did help give a generation a sense that you know we're a part of something new and now that is riding on something that was happening then uh in the, for the same reasons and in the same way and we're on the dance floor enjoying it the same way and right that, that's a beautiful thing right and i want to go back to early hip-hop and how a lot of like sugar hill gang a lot of houdini productions done by the late great larry smith they sounded like funk records and it was was it because a early rap was still in the disco era going into boogie which was later coined by acts like d train kashif show on and so forth so you kind of had that funk taste in early rap well a lot of the first rappers and rap recordings and rap um i don't want to call them tours but gigs were uh, piggybacking on what the funk and R&B uh, operation already had in place. So if you were gonna you know, get anywhere out of the New York City area, you might have to uh, go on the road uh, opening for Sky or Shalimar or somebody like that. Uh, you would be a, maybe in between two big hit R&B funk bands and have your little set that uh, sort of is for the teenagers at that time. And then promoters realized these kids got a more excited fan base than our grown folks R&B bands on the road. Uh, and a lot of the recordings that the rappers were doing, um, the machinery for making the electronic sounds wasn't necessarily what they needed. And a lot of them had to record, or if they had to, or they felt honored to, but they had funk bands in the studio with them, backing them up with the music. And um, the most prominent is uh, Curtis Blow's The Breaks. These are The Breaks. And he basically had uh, Im impromptu go-go bands playing that backup for him. And he was, yeah, he was talking about the breaks in your life, but he's also talking about the breaks in this breakdown right here, right? And uh, so there was a, there was a fascinating uh, relationship between the, the, the R&B funk um, 
industry and how it sort of was the bassinet, if you will, for hip hop to uh, be able to stand on its own feet because it had to be nurtured somewhere. So it was nurtured in the same studios uh, where the R&B and funk was nurtured. Even the, um, uh, Sylvia Robinson, you know, who created the, uh, the Sugar Hill Gang, right? She had this whole legacy of making R&B hits herself and, and for others. And so you had an infrastructure there. Even Dr. Dre made his hits at Solar Records, right? Which is for R&B bands, uh, for R&B acts. So uh, they sort of built on this, this infrastructure that was in place. And so it was maybe more than just sampling or the sampling came about as a result of that relationship. Um, but it was, it was a strong one then if you knew what you were looking for, an outsider would just sort of not care or notice it, it you know, sounds like the other one or, oh, they stole that. And sometimes it was just more they loved that and they given them some love. So uh, the beginning of hip hop couldn't happen if the R&B funk industry wasn't sitting right there. Right, and you mentioned Stolar Records. I wanna talk about a young man out of Indianapolis, Indiana. He got with a little band called The Deal along with his future songwriting producing partner, Antonio L.A. Reed, doing funk. If you go back and listen to the Material Things album, Street Beat, mm-hmm. Body Talk, Just My Luck. And then later on, that started LaFay's, everything that came out of LaFay's, his solo, everything. And can we just talk about the impact of Babyface? Man, Babyface, who got his name from Bootsy Collins. Uh, He had, and it's funny because most of his brilliance was behind the scenes, even though his name is, look at me. But... uh, he, him, uh, and, and L.A. Reed, these, these guys were a generation ahead of uh, um, Jay-Z. They were a generation ahead of these rap moguls in the East Coast that we valorized. And some people actually valorized their music. And that's cool. Um, but to kind of move forward in the industry in front and in back at the same time and do it in a way that was so slick, people didn't even know you were taking things over. And that's what I always appreciated about them. It's like, ooh, I got another. And they, they weren't out front making themselves so, um, so vulnerable that they could just be taken out. They always sort of had something built. I do wish Babyface would record some more music. Uh, again, it's not, to me, it's never too late, but you know the industry wouldn't pick it up. But we have a new industry now, and that's our own community that, that can follow these the stars and give them support and, and things like that. And, and I think folks like him uh, not only could put out music, he could put out uh, some seminars on how to operate uh, within the music industry and thrive. Right, and Babyface... Those, those, yeah, Babyface, he just released actually his demo of Rocksteady before it got cut on the whispers. And I want to talk about another person in Solar that gets mentioned by true music heads, but not a lot of folks in the mainstream know. The baddest man, producer, arranger, comes from a family group 
down in Southern California, out around the same time of the Jackson 5, gave you cuts such as Boogie Fever, Hotline, Forever Yours. You know who I'm talking about. Let's talk about Mr. Leon Silvers. Man, he's another one of those movers and shakers that you wouldn't notice, except he noticed his big old afro when he was fronting those, uh, the, the, the Silvers band. Um, it was, he just had a special knack for making something happen. And like I said, then letting it happen by itself. And I, I always respected what he did, why he did it, and how he did it. And he kind of put a stamp on a kind of a West Coast R&B thing that, you know, when you, when you start to unpack it, there was, a, there was a, lot, a lot of creativity coming out of there. And I think I looked at it as like, you know, this is really good. Is it really good or just does Don Cornelius always give him all the play for every record that he does? Uh, and I always thought about that because um, I was, if I was in LA, I would have been all up in Solar Records. I've been in the lobby, just hanging out, uh, look, checking these people out, le learning how they operate and how they, they, they seem to do it so well and sort of, like I said, stay out of that burning spotlight, okay? Uh, the only time I saw it got out of hand was when uh, Jody Watley went solo. And she said, I'm going to step forward, or maybe somebody told her, and then the burning spotlight hit. And she had, you know, a, one great year, maybe two, and it just seemed like, uh, I don't want to say she wasn't the same after that, but that burning spotlight, you know, will dry people up. And it's not like she came back a, two years later with, uh, you know, something with more fire than she had with, um, you know, I'm looking for a new love and a whole album that she did. Uh, it just seemed like everybody in, I, Leon Silvers knew how to keep it going and, and not get burned and stay out of that spotlight. And he's one of the, he's one of the greats. I need to do a whole tribute to his music. Right. And the misdemeanor record that he cut on his younger brother, Foster, the sample for Ain't It Funky Enough by the DOC, one of the best West Coast rappers I've ever heard. No one can do it better. My top five rap albums of all time. And also Dynasty Adventures in the Land of Music, sampled by Campolo for Lucini, which was produced by my fellow NC native, Ski Beats. And we talked about LA and Babyface, but I want to talk about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, their production, how they were able to have that funky stuff along with the pop sensibility, the way you still have the funk, but you were able to do it just enough to get it play on pop and R&B radio. They had that same knack and skill, like you mentioned, that Teddy Riley, LA, and Babyface had, where you're able to make it raw and authentic while the masses are loving it at the same time. Yeah, I felt what they did with Janet Jackson, um, right at the time that they did it, I don't know if you, how old you were when it first dropped, when uh, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, and you know, those Control, first... I was, you're gonna be shocked when I tell you how old I was when Control came out. I was about one, because Control <laughs> came out in 86. Okay, okay. but uh, 
it was really the first to take the big electro funk zap slapping beat claps and and make r and b accept make radio r and b accepted okay so they were taking what well, was really the, the ground level street sound and putting it in these songs and they had these softer melodies i keep thinking of the piano on the uh love can never do without you and, and a little softer melodies with the big beat and it created a, and janet's voice doesn't get credit because well you're she's not patty labelle she's not a belt no but she's a part of that atmosphere that that music made that had this top that was so pop and yet it had this bottom that was that had what was really the current electronic funk slap beats on the bottom. And so I love what they did uh, to kind of usher in uh, a kind of new way of making pop club music uh, that to me, it gave an homage to uh, what the, the, the beat uh, experimenters were doing. Um, a lot of times I talk about the 80s and we can mention the pop songs, but in generations before improvisation and jazz was the saxophone and rock was Jimi Hendrix and the guitar and you know maybe the synthesizer Billy Preston Stevie Wonder and Bernie Worrell and some of that but in the 80s it was really people experimenting with the beat with the dub sounds with the swamp and there's a lot of um, you know reggae music that was coming through that was opening people's nose and they were they were listening to how these kind of industrial funk noises were coming through at, on, on a like I said an underground level but then what made it to the top was the Janet Jackson because all the other club people all of the people we would deal and all the folks what we're talking about uh, full force turn the beats up a little bit stronger than anybody else Right, and they were they were, they were doing that because that was what was happening uh, below them. Right? So they, they were they brought the beat up there with them. So I was cool with that, and that in a sense made more room when uh, the big hit, hardcore hip hop from Public Enemy and Flavor Flav talking about bring that beat back. And so it was, a, it was all about the beat back then. Mm -hmm. And I want to mention out of Michigan, Flint, Ready for the World, and Oak Park, Dream Boy, they were signed to Quest Records, which was Quincy Jones' record label. Very, very successful act. If you know in the Midwest, Dream Boy got played a lot by I think what got Ready for the World more push was that they had the cosign of the electrifying mojo out of WJLB out in Detroit. And if you know Detroit Midwest Radio, Electrifying Mojo was the man. That guy was nuts. And for him to give credit to a a, a band that may not have something extreme happening, but they kind of did. Those guys had a, a certain flavor uh, to them. And so you're right, by getting that guy to support, to endorse them, um, that took them maybe to a next to a next step uh and that's that's the thing our whole community supported our stuff back then and i don't i don't know if a young electrifying mojo could show up uh today uh he might have a good internet blog 
but uh, the, the connections that he had and the way he could uh, sort of recreate our culture in ways that is just, just, just big. And, and you just, you thinking more than you plan to think that day when you, you sort of get walloped by his stuff. But he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's wild. I wish I had listened to him growing up. Right. That would have been something. I do too. And I want to know, is there a difference between funk out of the Bay Area, funk out of the Midwest, and funk out of other locations with acts such as Cameo, SOS Band, Fat Bat Band, BB&Q Band, are they all the same, but with different variations depending on regionality? Well, there are a few kind of re re regional tweaks that you can find. Uh, the New Orleans funk has a just a little bit of a lowdown uh, to it. So you're not gonna find that super high energy stuff. And it, it, it got a little bit of just a, just a a little tinge of that blues root uh, that's in there, that down, that down in the swamp type of funk. And, um, and it has its own self-contained culture. There are people that are extremely popular in New Orleans funk, New Orleans music. They may not even be known far out there. They'd be known around the world maybe better than they're known uh, in, uh, you know, um, Michigan or something like that, in Iowa or something like that. They may, I would imagine they know, but it, it has its own identity. Um, Minneapolis has its own identity. New York had an identity that I always associated with the BT Express uh, because they were they had grit, but then they had a certain soul singing on top and an ability to arrange songs. Even before Kashif was involved, they were arranging some really good stuff. And there was a guy, I think his name is Randy Muller, who wound up going from that to um, brass construction and then sky. And all of those kind of had a, a slick, soulful clubbiness to them. And it's like every, every funk band out of New York sort of was in the inner planets of disco at that time. So they all kind of worked with it. The Fatback Band, um, through the Spanish hustle. Um, Jimmy Castor did a few, even though he always cranked up the bass when he was doing his thing. Cameo did Find My Way. And uh, they also kind of mixed both with uh, It's Serious. They were doing, you know, uh, disco folk, as best, you, as best you can say. And so that was sort of the, you know, the big center of gravity for a lot of these bands that were punk bands that when they got the opportunity to cut loose, they would, you know, throw down. Because the great funk was there. James Brown was there a lot. P-Funk was there a lot. Um, so people got it, but it was just this other influence. But So I, I think of New York funk as a sort of disco influence, uh, sort of brilliant combination of sort of disco influence, dance music, and sort of the organic funk lick. That these other people had. Now there's a there's a West Coast thing that is um, it sort of has a it's hard to find a direct line, but it's these echoes of Sly and the Family Stone and Grand Central Station, uh, and you can find it in bands out of Seattle. You can find it in a lot of LA bands uh, that, that that come up, um, and of course in the Bay, 
uh, this guy named Ron Cat, who left P-Funk after 10 years and did his band, the Cat Delic, and they, the last couple of years, are winning the best band in the in the Bay Awards, and that's across all styles. But he was bringing that P-Funk vibe real strong, real, real heavy. Um, but, and I always felt that the Bay Area funk sound, it had all these original elements, but there was the, you know, the Tower of Power thing always lets you know there's a big band element to funk. That may not be your thing, but there is a big band element to funk. And so there are bands out of New York, like Lettuce, um, and some of these new ones like Turquoise, and some of that stuff Dane Funk is producing uh, out of LA. And people are trying their hand at different formulas of that funk. And we're kind of spoiled out here because we've seen a lot of these flavors and sometimes, I don't know if that's true or not, we kind of like uh, measure them by some of these other higher standards, which isn't really right. It's measure them by 2021. Right, and you mentioned Dane Funk. When I first heard, I want to thank you for stepping into my life off of Teacher's Own, I immediately thought of Surface. <laughs> it has that Surface and sound. You could tell he's been thinking about that, okay? Um, and he wants to recreate that for a new generation. And I think he's doing that. I Sometimes I think he needs to find himself, you know, a superstar singer to be in front of some of these arrangements that he does that, that can bring some of that, bring a lot of that to life. But, and he would, he would kind of open the door because he created a career for himself beyond just being a DJ, right? And so in, in that sense, he's kind of that pioneer. And I'm sure there are plenty of other folks that started as DJs that became, you know, producers and da 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 da, da. And, and yeah, you got your house music and, and techno and, and you got these people that did it, but um, to be able to do it with the funk and with the kind of high standards of R&B that are, that are there, um, he's been doing some heavy, heavy lifting. So I do, uh, you know, I'd like to hope that, you know, he's still got his wheels spinning and, and maybe he spent this downtime in the lockdown kind of putting some collaborations together that right. can uh, kind of let everybody know that he's the OG and, uh, and, he, and that mix should be happening. And he's one of the he's one of the front line people that, that can do that. Mm -hmm. And where is it that you think that Bruno Mars found that sweet spot where he's able to take 70s soul, 80s funk, R and B, reintroduce it to a new audience? Because when I heard Leave the Door Open with him and Anderson Pac, 70s soul, uptown funk, Morris Day in the Time, finesse, new Jack Swing, he's able to take music of the yesteryear and recycle it, not recycle. I would want to say reintroduce it in a way to where it is not considered, oh, that's your mom, dad's, aunt, uncle's genre. But young kids are saying, hey, I want more of this. And they go back and listen to records from before, just like I did with the previous decade's records when I was their age. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's not a crime to do that. Uh, I personally think every artist that gets, that gets a, a bit, uh, like a, you know, a record deal, they can't, they come in with a dozen songs of their own and somebody says, no, we don't need that, that song that, 
gives credit to Billie Holiday. No, we don't need that song about your grandmother. No, we don't need that song about the blues that you came up with. You know, give us the you know, eight trendy hits and then we will write the rest of them and give you a record. And I think there's a, a filtering. Pro- I think people have this, this stronger connection to their roots. We all have it, but the commercial industry, it's not their first idea to recognize that, to celebrate that. And so the artist has to oftentimes push really hard or a crisis like George Floyd's murder and um, in cold blood on, on uh, in broad daylight. Something has to happen for uh, sort of disruption of the boundaries and the, and the um, gatekeeping um, to happen so people can start to do that a little bit more. And I wish, I wish they would. It shouldn't have to take, you know, a crisis like... Uh, Vietnam War and the and the black civil and civil rights and the up in Martin Luther King's murder shouldn't have to take that much for freedom of the artist to to take hold. But unfortunately, that's been our history. Right. And two more questions. I'm going to get you out of here on those two. Uh, your thoughts on the impact that Soul Beat has had on the Bay Area. And for those who don't know, Soul Beat Chuck Johnson came out in, I believe, 79, predated BET by a year, and also what Boots Riley, Davi Diggs, and Ryan Coogler are doing in the entertainment film space and how they're carrying on the traditions of all the greats from the Bay Area that came before them. Yeah, well, Chuck Johnson Solby uh, created our, you know, our own um, kind of um, conversation network. Like Don Cornelius went national, Chuck Johnson was regional, and and we felt it. And it and again, he, people came out here to uh, sort of work with him. He he didn't try to work. I mean, he did. He worked with everybody. But I remember Lakeside did a video uh, of one of their songs that was just an Oakland version because they came out and they wanted to you know, rock soul beat. Uh, in a way that, re- that respected that. And that says a lot about Lakeside. It says a lot about Soul Beat and, and Chuck, Jansen, Chuck Johnson, a lot about Oakland. Uh, that folks would want to uh, connect to what, what, what we were doing. And, it, you know, it's hard because I didn't know that every other city didn't have its own Soul Beat. Okay. I knew it had a local feel. And I knew that uh, there were folks that could get on and do. Uh, um, their own, you know, kind of programming and stuff. But I thought just kind of maybe absently that every black city would have some of that. And maybe it did and it, and it disappeared. Um, but that was a part of what helped define who we are, what we are, what we're about. And so then you had this next wave of youngsters come up. And you mentioned that Dobby Diggs and Boots Riley is now a filmmaker. Um, and um, Ryan Coogler and, and a handful of others, the, thing, the subject matter that they're using, uh, the historical consciousness, the sort of echoes of the, of the Black Panthers, that Black power and Black pride that's, that's around, um, the tone of a lot of those films is where I wish our music would be, okay? And you have to really look hard to find good examples of that music. Like I said, they made it through the gatekeepers. They can do that. Now her, she can do that, but she was already a child star. And sort of had 
work on her path, had, had been able to work on that path. So she, she couldn't just be dismissed right away, right? And if she were by somebody, someone else would remember and, and plug her in. But uh, for a minute, I was like, well, black film is, is doing what black music used to do, especially black film from Oakland. You know, it's telling our story in a raw, rich, real way that uh, can empower us, uh, you know, to stand up against this storm and to, you know, create you know, images and ideas so that we can handle handle this mess, okay? And it would be nice now, maybe one of their next movies will have a real heavy Oakland soundtrack type of thing. There's a few cuts, and that's cool, but uh, I'd like to, I'd like to, I'd like to see Oakland get, you know, really recognized as this, to use a term out here, impact hub. That's not a term, that's a location that the community work is done. But people should be able to see that Oakland is where these ideas come from. And this is where, you know, these liberated thinking, these liberated people with multiple influences, but, you know, liberating black lives is the right and if you have not seen blind spot and sorry not to bother you great films check them out and get fed for your mind your spirit your soul now dr vincent any shout outs you want to give before we conclude this interview and also plug your social media <laughs> and also well, current projects uh, well um you know i'm on the air every friday night doing a, a kind of psychedelic Juneteenth this Friday on the history of funk. Uh, you can go to rickyvincent.com and see what those things are about. Uh, I have a, I'm on Facebook and I have a list of the history of funk with Ricky Vincent on KPFA where we kind of keep the information of that kind of thing going and keep it, keep it bouncing around. Um, you know, a lot of us are just now peeking out like Groundhog, just looking at what's up now that the opening is, and there's bands playing again, and you know, how, how do we do this? How do we do this thing? Um, and so, and I'm still uh, doing the radio uh, uh, outside. I'm remotely sending in uh, those things. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the time we can all get together and jam and, uh, you know, have a session in the studio and, and, and do our thing together. Um, so, but that's what I'm doing. I'm still collecting, still writing. I got some some projects in, on the line. Um, a Russian publisher translated the funk book into Russian this year, and they asked me for a new chapter. And since nobody else had asked me for a new chapter, uh, they're getting they they have a new introduction, and I'm working on a new chapter for the funk book which it might be a minute before it comes out in English, but that's happening. And then um, some people that work with uh, Brother Scott Brown at UCLA, he helped organize the Dayton Funk Symposium in 2018. And that was awesome. A lot of musicians came, some scholars came and people came, and they're doing another one in the fall of 2021 in November. And so uh, people are going to be coming and they're talking about, you know, uh, research on the music and some musicians talking about the music and they have concerts and things. So uh, people are trying to 
put down roots for the funk. And there's nothing better to do than that. After 50 years, uh, we need to recognize everybody's work and uh, give, them some, give them some solid, solid legacies that uh, you know they can give to their children and beyond. Right, because you don't want them to grow up like Sir Knows devoid of funk and be just that devoid of the funk because the funk is good, the funk is gritty, the funk is nasty. Funk is funk. Ladies and gentlemen, let's thank Dr. Ricky Vincent for his time for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover. You can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash j85 and on the website beyondthealbumcover.wordpress.com. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Dr. Ricky Vincent on Beyond the Album Cover. Dr. Vincent, thank you for doing this interview. Thank you, Brother Dale. Appreciate all of it, man. Thanks no problem. All. No problem. <laughs>